Chapter Twelve of the Life of Honorable William F. Cody. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. The Life of Honorable William F. Cody by William F. Cody. Chapter Twelve: A Wedding. It was during the winter of 1864-65, while I was on detached service at military headquarters at St. Louis, that I became acquainted with a young lady named Louisa Frederici whom I greatly admired, and in whose charming society I spent many a pleasant hour. The war closing in 1865, I was discharged, and after a brief visit at Leavenworth, I returned to St. Louis, having made up my mind to capture the heart of Miss Frederici, whom I now adored above any other young lady I had ever seen. Her lovely face, her gentle disposition, and her graceful manners won my admiration and love, and I was not slow in declaring my sentiments to her. The result was that I obtained her consent to marry me in the near future, and when I bade her good-bye, I considered myself one of the happiest of men. Meantime, I drove a string of horses from Leavenworth to Fort Kearney, where I met my old friend Bill Trotter, who was then division stage agent. He employed me at once to drive stage between Kearney and Plum Creek, the road running near the spot where I had my first Indian fight with the McCarthy brothers, and where I killed my first Indian nearly nine years before. I drove stage over this route until February 1866, and while bounding over the cold, dreary road, day after day, my thoughts turned continually towards my promised bride, until I at last determined to abandon staging forever, and marry and settle down. Immediately after coming to this conclusion, I went to St. Louis, where I was most cordially received by my sweetheart. It was arranged between us that our wedding should take place on the sixth day of March following. At last the day arrived, and the wedding ceremony was performed at the residence of the bride's parents, in the presence of a large number of invited friends, whose hearty congratulations we received. I was certainly to be congratulated, for I had become possessed of a lovely and noble woman, and as I gazed upon her as she stood beside me, arrayed in her wedding costume, I indeed felt proud of her, and from that time to this I have always thought that I made a most fortunate choice for a life partner. An hour after the ceremony we, my bride and myself, were on board of a Missouri River steamboat, bound for our new home in Kansas. My wife's parents had accompanied us to the boat, and had bidden us a fond farewell, and a godspeed on our journey. During the trip up the river several very amusing, yet awkward, incidents occurred, some of which I cannot resist relating. There happened to be on board the boat an excursion party from Lexington, Missouri, and those comprising it seemed to shun me, for some reason which I could not then account for. They would point at me, and quietly talk among themselves, and eye me very closely. Their actions seemed very strange to me. After the boat had proceeded some little distance, I made the acquaintance of several families from Indiana, who were en route to Kansas. A gentleman, who seemed to be the leader of these colonists, said to me, The people of the excursion party don't seem to have any great love for you. What does it mean? I asked. What are they saying? It's all a mystery to me. They say you are one of the Kansas Jayhawkers, and one of Jennison's house-burners, replied the gentleman. I am from Kansas, that's true, and was a soldier and a scout in the Union Army, said I, and I was in Kansas during the Border Ruffian War of 1856. Perhaps these people know who I am, and that explains their hard looks. I had a lengthy conversation with this gentleman, for such he seemed to be, and entertained him with several chapters of the history of the early Kansas troubles, and told him the experiences of my own family. In the evening the Lexington folks got up a dance, but neither the Indiana people, my wife, or myself were invited to join them. My new-found friend thereupon came to me and said, Mr. Cody, let us have a dance of our own. 
Very well, was my reply. We have some musicians along with us, so we can have plenty of music, remarked the gentleman. Good enough, said I, and I will hire the negro barber to play the violin for us. He is a good fiddler, as I heard him playing only a little while ago. The result was that we soon organized a good string band and had a splendid dance, keeping it up as long as the Lexington party did theirs. The second day out from St. Louis, the boat stopped to wood up, at a wild-looking landing. Suddenly twenty horsemen were seen galloping up through the timber, and as they came nearer the boat they fired on the negro deckhands, against whom they seemed to have a special grudge, and who were engaged in throwing wood on board. The negroes all quickly jumped on the boat and pulled in the gangplank, and the captain had only just time to get the steamer out into the stream before the bushwhackers, for such they proved to be, appeared on the bank. "'Where is the black abolition jayhawker?' shouted the leader. "'Show him to us, and we'll shoot him,' yelled another. But as the boat had got well out in the river by this time, they could not board us, and the captain, ordering a full head of steam, pulled out and left them. I afterwards ascertained that some of the Missourians, who were with the excursion party, were bushwhackers themselves, and had telegraphed to their friends from some previous landing that I was on board, telling them to come to the landing which we had just left and take me off. Had the villains captured me, they would have undoubtedly put an end to my career, and the public would never have had the pleasure of being bored by this autobiography. I noticed that my wife felt grieved over the manner in which these people had treated me. Just married, she was going into a new country, and seeing how her husband was regarded, how he had been shunned, and how his life had been threatened, I was afraid she might come to the conclusion too soon that she had wedded a hard customer. So when the boat landed at Kansas City, I telegraphed to some of my friends in Leavenworth that I would arrive there in the evening. My object was to have my acquaintances give me a reception, so that my wife could see that I really did have some friends, and was not so bad a man as the bushwhackers tried to make out. Just as I expected, when the boat reached Leavenworth, I found a general round-up of friends at the landing to receive us. There were about sixty gentlemen and ladies. They had a band of music with them, and we were given a fine serenade. Taking carriages, we all drove to South Leavenworth, to the home of my sister Eliza, who had married George Myers, and there we were given a very handsome reception. All this cheered up my wife, who concluded that I was not a desperado after all. Having promised my wife that I would abandon the plains, I rented a hotel in Salt Creek Valley, the same house, by the way, which my mother had formerly kept, but which was then owned by Dr. J. J. Crook, late surgeon of the 7th Kansas. This hotel I called the Golden Rule House, and I kept it until the next September. People generally said I made a good landlord, and knew how to run a hotel, a business qualification which, it is said, is possessed by comparatively few men. But it proved too tame employment for me, and again I sighed for the freedom of the plains. Believing that I could make more money out west, on the frontier, than I could at Salt Creek Valley, I sold out the Golden Rule House, and started alone for Saline, Kansas, which was then the end of the track of the Kansas Pacific Railway, which was at the time being built across the plains. On my way I stopped at Junction City, where I again met my old friend Wild Bill, who was scouting for the government, his headquarters being at Fort Ellsworth, afterwards called Fort Harker. He told me that they needed more scouts at this post, and I accordingly accompanied him to that fort, where I had no difficulty in obtaining employment. During the winter of 1866-67, I scouted between Fort Ellsworth and Fort Fletcher. In the spring of 1867, I was at Fort Fletcher, when General Custer came out to go on an Indian expedition with General Hancock. I remained at this post until it was drowned out by the heavy floods of Big Creek, on which it was located. The water rose about the fortifications and rendered the place unfit for occupancy. 
so the government abandoned the fort and moved the troops and supplies to a new post which had been named fort hayes located farther west on the south fork of big creek it was while scouting in the vicinity of fort hayes that i made my first ride with a dashing and gallant custer who had come up to the post from fort ellsworth with an escort of only ten men he wanted a guide to pilot him to fort learned a distance of sixty-five miles across the country i was ordered by the commanding officer to guide general custer to his desired destination and i soon received word from the general that he would start out in the morning with the intention of making the trip in one day early in the morning after a good night's rest i was on hand mounted on my large mouse-colored mule an animal of great endurance and ready for the journey when the general saw me he said cody i want to travel fast and go through as quickly as possible and i don't think that mule of yours is fast enough to suit me general never mind the mule said i he'll get there as soon as your horses that mule is a good one as i knew that the animal was better than most horses very well go ahead then said he though he looked as if he thought i would delay the party on the road for the first fifteen miles until we came to the smoky hill river which we were to cross i could hardly keep the mule in advance of the general who rode a frisky impatient and ambitious thoroughbred steed in fact the whole party was finally mounted the general repeatedly told me that the mule was no good and that i ought to have had a good horse but after crossing the river and striking the sand hills i began letting my mule out a little and putting the persuaders to him he was soon out traveling the horses and by the time we had made about half the distance to fort larned i occasionally had to wait for the general or some of his party as their horses were beginning to show signs of fatigue general how about this mule anyhow i asked at last cody you have a better vehicle than i thought you had was his reply from that time on to fort larned i had no trouble in keeping ahead of the party we rode into the fort at four o'clock in the afternoon with about half the escort only the rest having lagged far behind general custer thanked me for having brought him straight across the country without any trail and said that if i were not engaged as post scout at fort hayes he would like to have me accompany him as one of his scouts during the summer and he added that whenever i was out of employment if i would come to him he would find something for me to do this was the beginning of my acquaintance with general custer whom i always admired as a man and as an officer a few days after my return to fort hayes the indians made a raid on the kansas pacific railroad killing five or six men and running off about one hundred horses and mules the news was brought to the commanding officer who immediately ordered major arms of the tenth cavalry which by the way was a negro regiment with his company and one mountain howitzer to go in pursuit of the redskins and i was sent along with the expedition as scout and guide on the second day out we suddenly discovered on the opposite side of the saline river about a mile distant a large body of indians who were charging down upon us major arms placing the cannon on a little knoll limbered it up and left twenty men to guard it and then with the rest of the command he crossed the river to meet the indians just as he had got the men over the stream we heard a terrific yelling and shouting in our rear and looking back to the knoll where the cannon had been stationed we saw the negroes who had been left there to guard the gun flying towards us being pursued by about one hundred indians while another large party of the latter were dancing around the captured cannon as if they had got hold of an elephant and did not know what to do with it major arms turned his command back and drove the indians from the gun the troops then dismounted and took position there quite a severe fight ensued lasting about two hours five or six of the soldiers as well as major arms were wounded and several of the horses were shot the indians seemed to grow thicker and thicker as if receiving reinforcements from some large party 
the colored troops, who had been bragging all the way that if they could only see some Indians, they would blow them off the farm, which was a favorite expression of theirs, were now singing a different tune. Every time the Indians would make a charge at us, the darkies would cry out, Here they come. They must be ten thousand of them. The whole country is alive with them. Massa Bill, do you think we is ever going to get out of here? And many other similar expressions. Major Arms, who was wounded and lying under the cannon, which, by the way, had become useless, called me up and asked if I thought there was any show of getting back to the fort. I replied that there was. Orders were accordingly given by Major Arms for a retreat, the cannon being left behind. During the movement, several of our men were killed, but as night came and dense darkness prevailed, we succeeded in making good headway, and got into Fort Hayes, just at daylight next morning, in a very played-out condition. During our absence, the cholera had broken out at the post, and five or six men were dying daily. It was difficult to tell which was the greater danger, fighting Indians on the prairie, or facing the cholera in camp. But the former was decidedly more inviting. End of chapter 12